I, I certainly realize that I don't carry the same, I don't carry the kind of charisma that is needed to keep everyone awake, including myself. Um, it's often difficult after having a lunch to just press on and, and rush in and um, do what we're doing, but we're, we are coping with it and we, we do it to the best of our ability. So I want you to know I understand. Um, we're going to continue discussing the ideals of a Christian state. And what I want us to be impressed with is that these are the ultimate ideals. These are the things that we should advocate these for various reasons, right? First of all, because as we lay these biblical principles out, they are biblical. They are consistent with God being the creator of this world. And they're consistent with the institutions that God has ordained for the world, now keep that in mind. That is, if we just if the, if things were if evolution was true, and things were random, and things were the product of a social construct, these are just things that people come up with to help us live with one another as we evolve. Well, then we could have all kinds of theories and ideas that are just as valid as the next one. Now, keep that in mind. It, it, that would be the marketplace of ideas, wouldn't it? Now, we are in this marketplace of ideas, so to speak, because we've, as Christians, we've pulled back. And others have filled the vacuum, have filled the void. Now, as Christians, we're having to contend in that space. We're now having to come back to the old paths that that's what Jeremiah called it, the old paths, and now begin to reassert those those eternal truths that have been that have been held by Christians for over several millennia. And somehow act as if it's not new. And at the same time, for many of us, it may be new. But they're not new truths. They're just new to you. They are as old as time. So if you have your Bibles, open, open them to Exodus 20. I'm going to read a text of Scripture and then introduce our topic for this afternoon. Exodus 20. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Really, we could begin at verse 1 and read all the way through, but we really don't have that kind of time. So I'm going to read verse 22 through verse 24. Now hear the word of the Lord. And then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or uh, gold, or gods of gold, you shall not make them for yourselves. You shall not make an altar of earth. Um, you shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen, and every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. Now, I'm going to stop there because this is sort of a an enforcement of what we're going to talk about 
where the Lord is commanding his people to remember him, to not have any other gods, and to remember how he is to be worshiped. Now, one of the things we've already said about nationalism, right, Christian nationalism or a Christian state, is that when rulers, magistrates hear the gospel, what's their moral obligation? Their moral obligation is the same as your moral obligation, which is to repent of your sins and to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. But yet they hold a particular office that also must come into subjection of Christ, because Christ is also the chief and supreme magistrate of this world and of the cosmos. Now, the second principle last week, we talked about justice, the importance of it, the foundation of it, that it provides for a, a society. The second foundation or pillar of any sound society, healthy society, that's what the the, the Greek word for the word sound has to do with health, hygiene. For a healthy society is the sacredness of an oath. The sacredness of an oath. And so let me just read. And of course, this is the, the, uh, it's the expounding of the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. Now, if you are sitting there and you think, wait a minute, pastor, I got you. I got you. You're talking about the first table of the law. And the magistrate should only be concerned with the second table of the law. Well, my question to you is, where do you get that? Where do you find that? See, that divided the Church of Scotland several hundred years ago. That was the debate. That was one of the major debates that divided the Church of Scotland was, wait a minute, the civil magistrates, we should only require them to keep the second table of the law, not the first table of the law. And it was a pretty big controversy and it split the church. And most of your Presbyterians living at this time hold that view that the civil magistrate is not to touch the first table of the law, but only the second table of the law. Now, I want to lay before your mind, number one, where is that taught in Scripture? Number two, how can they not be held to the first table of the law? Why should they not be held to the first table of the law, being that Christ is the chief magistrate. Now, we're talking about an oath and its sacredness, which is the third commandment. Now, I hope you already see we find our, we back ourselves into a corner if we hold to the idea that the civil magistrate should never, ever touch the first table of the law, that that's religious, that's for religion, that's for the church not the civil magistrate. Well, let's continue as I sort of lay that out there in front of you because as you have these discussions, you're going to have, you're going to run into somebody that's pretty savvy and this is what they're going to throw up. And I'm not, not, I mean, let me restate that. I don't mean it that way. I don't mean in a sick way. I mean, they're going to throw up 
in front of you this idea, okay? I told you it's afternoon. I'm not as quick and sharp as I am in the mornings. So let me read the opening paragraph of uh, uh, Mr. Burks in his commentary on a sacred oath. He says, in one of the main elements, a sacred oath is one main element on which the whole framework of social justice depends. That's not a new word, is it? Social justice, our new phrase. Even heathens have remarked that habitual perjury is one sure token of national decay. Now, those heathens back then were a little bit different than our heathens today. Okay. The discovery of truth is a main part of the ruler's duty in the execution of justice. And the sanction of an oath by the consenting judgment of all ages, that means being consistent with history, and the testimony of the apostle is a powerful help to this discovery. That is, how do you discover justice? An oath for confirmation is an end of all strife. But three things are plainly required for a right use and a a right use of this oath. There's three things that are needed. Number one, knowledge of the nature of an oath. Secondly, a conviction that they are lawful and right. And thirdly, a deep sense of their sacredness and binding authority. Now, those are three things that we, that a lawful oath needs to contain. A right knowledge of it, a conviction that it is right, and a deep sense of its sacredness and authority. There are thus a threefold cord, not easily broken, to link the ordinances of social justice with the national homage to the word of God and truth. I'm sure many of you are, I know some of you are because of your um, savviness in politics and whatnot can already begin to see how this has broken down our own nation. This lack of understanding of what a sacred oath is and what it's for. I wanna go ahead and address before I get into the definition of some of these things, when you talk about an oath, when he says that an oath is a confirmation, is an end of all strife. In the biblical case law, um, what, what do you do when you have two parties, no witnesses, that say opposite things about one another? There's a case, it comes before Moses, who's right? How do you know? Because remember, what did you need to, you know, what, what did you need to possess in order to really bring condemnation on someone as for guilt? And that is what? Witnesses. And at least two. Particularly if the guy says, I'm innocent. Believe it or not, that's even one of the reasons why we had the, uh, um, well, I'm going to get sidetracked on that. But. Let me say this, because I have a tendency to chase rabbits when we're talking about politics. So in the Old Testament case law, when you had two people come to the judge, they would have to swear an oath. 
they would have to take an oath that they're that they were telling the truth, so help them God. And the purpose of that oath was to call down God's judgment upon them if they were lying. Now, I don't know about you, but that scares me. And that's what it does to the common man, particularly a nation that says there is a God and that this God is the triune God, and that this God inhabits, built, created this earth, and this God sent his son to, when you, particularly as you're dealing with a Christian nation that's coming under, if you will, the umbrella of the worldview of scripture, then it is that God, I call God to witness for me or against me in this matter. And believe it or not, I have used it in church situations. I mean, we've had discrepancies among families on matters. And the, how, do, how, how does a session solve it? And be faithful to God and be faithful to these people. I mean, obviously, both believe they've been wronged. And we would exercise this taking of an oath. We weren't there. We didn't see it. We love you both. We believe you both, but both of you can't be right. And before God, we are not going to make a judgment on this matter. Before God, we ask you to take an oath that you call God to witness against you or for you. And we've only had one actually take it. So I I leave that there. When we talk about sacredness, things that are sacred, Now, that's hard in our day and time because nothing's sacred. (laughs) Everything has become plain. Everything has become ordinary. Everything has become common. And there's no distinction between that which is common and that which is noble, right? That which is higher, if you will. But we should not, we should not, um, we shouldn't cease using this idea, this term, this word sacred. Let me give you the definition of it according to Noah Webster. The definition for sacred, well, is well a sense of being removed or separated from that which is common. It, it, that is, we don't, you know, we don't, you don't walk into your wife and you say, hey, look, you know, um, yeah, I dropped a dog off at the vet. You going to take an oath? I mean, we, we don't use it for common things. Oh, do you, do you make the house payment? You going to take an oath? I mean, we don't do that. What, what would that do? It would bring it down to ordinary common language. And we want to make sure that it maintains its sacredness, its high value. Um, and so we want to see it separated from a common use. And he goes on to say vulgar, um, a sense is being removed or separated from that which is common, that, from that which is vulgar, from that which is polluted. Um, separated from a society are the privileges of citizens uh, that are being rejected or banished. That is, um, citizens of a nation holding to certain, having certain privileges that others do not have that are not citizens. Let that sink in. You see, what do we ask people to do when they become nationalized? Take an oath. They take an oath, right? When you join the military, you take an oath. When you become a judge, you take an oath. When you become a minister of the gospel, you take an oath. 
to perform your duty. That is, there are doctors take an oath. These important, they're, they're important offices for the well-being of a society are structured around oaths. But what happens when those oaths are no longer sacred? And it, we should expect that as we become more atheistic, that the idea of the sacred goes away. Right? Because if we're going to talk about things from their common use to a very particular special use, we have to invoke God. And this is the second, uh, this is what Noah Webster goes on to say. He says it has to do with the holy. You know what the word holy means, set apart. Pertaining to God or to his worship. Separated from common secular use and consecrated to God and his service as a sacred place, a sacred day, a sacred feast, a sacred service, or a sacred office. And when you think about these offices that uh, uh, institute an oath, ministers, doctors, judges, Politicians, husbands and wives, it's, we don't, it don't take much to see that these are, these are pretty important positions. These are pretty important places and people and offices that are, well, required to take an oath. You know, that's why marriage at least from the Reformation perspective of it, there was two different views of marriage from the Catholic Church and the Reformed Church. The, the, the Catholic Church wanted marriage to be um, a sacrament, okay? Holy in the same sense as the Lord's Supper. Well, the Reformers said, no, it's holy, it's set apart, but it's not a religious it's not a religious ceremony, it's a civil ceremony. Meaning that marriage had more to do with civil society and its stability than in the church. And one of their arguments, and of course they have weight here, is that we find no expositions of scriptures for ministers to manage a wedding, a ceremony. We have Jesus attending a wedding in the Gospel of John, but we're not told who's officiating the wedding. Now, why would the civil magistrate have, a, have an interest in marriage? Well, not that the church was void, it's not that you can't get married in a church. But why would the civil magistrate have an interest in marriage? Well, because of posterity. There's a legal understanding of posterity. There's, there's the generational wealth being handed down from one generation to the next. There's deeds and titles. There's the prospect of marrying people that shouldn't be married, such as People that are mentally unstable to be married. I mean, retardation and such enough. People that might be taken advantage of. I mean, Christianity. Uh, 
what is done in a marriage has civil ramifications. And that's why in the Old Testament it talked about divorce polluting the land. When there's just, when divorce is rampant, that is when there's divorce for no reason, there's just people divorcing, 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 like, like in our nation, for no reasons whatsoever, no good reasons, no valid reasons. It's just I'm ready to move on to something else, like changing my clothes. It pollutes the land. Then we can see that we, when we have such a low view of such an important institution like marriage, has it not spilled over into other areas with doctors not keeping their vows and oaths to do what? Protect the patient. Do what's good for the patient. Judges, to without prejudice, exercise justice. Favor not the rich, favor not the poor, but to just do justice in God's name. Ministers, to tell the truth. To preach the gospel and not their own opinions and ride their own hobby horses. But to preach the word of God as it is and not worry about the opinions of men. So it's holy, it's pertaining to God worship, it's separated from its common secular uses to that which is very valuable and important. So we can see here that it's easily a Christian idea, it's biblical. And remember, we're talking about societies rising up to those Christian ideals. You know, to me, the argument for a Christian state or not, it kind of centers around to, listen, um, who in here would advocate to just have one leg when you can have two? You say, well, I can get around with one. I, I'm sure, I know you can. But it's not ideal. Two's ideal. To rise up to the ideal which be, would be a Christian state. And to see the, the, the civil magistrate as a gift from God, as ordained of God for a particular function, for a particular purpose, for the well-being of the citizens and all of the various other institutions, lesser and greater magistrates, working in tandem or at least in harmony with the church that's tasked with preaching the gospel and preaching the truth along with the family. Seeing our families blessed, strengthened, protected, both civilly and spiritually. There's a Larger Catechism question 112, what is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requires that in the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, and vows, lots, his works, and whatever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holy and reverently used in thought, meditation, word and writing and profession and even in conversation. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth. 
and let not thy heart be hasty to utter anything before God, before the God of heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore, let the words be few. Verses 4 and through 6 when you vow, vow unto God and defer not to pay it. Don't, is, don't put it off. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which has been vowed. It is better that thou should not vow than for thou to vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. And be careful what you promise. Therefore say thou before the angel, that was an error whereby God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thy hands. Meaning that God holds people accountable for their mouths. Now we certainly know in Matthew 12, we are told that every word, we're going to be judged by every word that comes out of our mouth. But particularly for those that are vows. Especially those that are vows. And when we have ministers that take their vows that they don't mean to keep. That's a detriment to the church. When we have judges that take their vows that they don't mean to keep, that's a detriment to society. When we have magistrates that take vows they don't, they don't intend to keep, that's a detriment to society as well. And so we can see the reason these things are, the reason these things even matter because we have one God who has created everything and he is the God of this world. He is the God, this world belongs to him. We have a whole chapter on vows and oaths. I encourage you to go read it. Chapter 22 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let me get back to Burks. He goes on, he says, every oath is at once a profession of faith and an act of worship. Now, when, when, a, when a magistrate, a judge a doctor, anyone, when a, a, a man and a woman, when they take a oath, when they take their oath, it is an act of worship before God. They are making promises and calling him to come and witness to them. He says, thereby we own the presence of an almighty God to whom all secret things are known and whose eyes observe all the thoughts and action of men. We own further that he is a God of truth. He hates falsehood and iniquity and has threatened all deliberate liars with severe punishment. There is further implied some faith in a future judgment. And that is true, right? Because if you take an oath and you are calling God to witness against you, there is faith that what? What's God going to do in the future? exercise judgment if you're not you don't keep it so there is an act of faith it's not saving faith but there is an act of faith implied in the taking of an oath especially when you call God to witness it you know for and against you there he says in this holy being will take account of all his creatures talking about God and render to all men according to their works and thus the public administration of oaths imply a public confession of religious truths of first importance. 
The lawgivers who impose them, the judges who administer them, the witnesses or officers who take them are all guilty of profane mockery unless there is a real acknowledgement on the part of the state of the power and the watchful providence of the coming judgment of God. Quote, these are the deep foundations of sacred truth on which pillars of societies must rest. That's powerful. And look how it's broken down all around us. Our words no longer really have value and meaning. We just say whatever needs to be said. Politicians are notorious liars. They are notorious liars. They, they are, and I, obviously I'm not talking about every single solitary one of them. I don't know them all. But they pride themselves in, in just being in the moment, saying whatever they need to say. I mean, we've seen the videos. We've watched the clips of, of a, one statement contradicting another statement, contradicting another statement, contradicting another statement without, without shame. That's calling God's judgment upon them because they took an oath of office. It doesn't matter if the oath taker believes it or not. It's profaned. If he doesn't believe what he's actually agreeing to, it's even doubly profaned. It's even doubly corrupt for him to do so. It's better for him to go, I can't take it because I don't believe in it. That would be more honorable than to put your hand on the Bible to take an oath of office and never intend to agree with it or even think about it again. And again, part of this falls upon the church because the church has forsaken her sacred duty into preaching the whole counsel of God's word. These politicians that participate in this kind of profaneness has called judgment upon this nation. They are the cause of it. They're, because they hold offices, whether you know, we can have the debate on whether or not they were legitimately voted in or not, that's all in question, isn't it? We don't know. In fact, there's good evidence that many of them weren't technically voted in. And let that sink in. If true, it is required of the Christian church to teach the nation about lawful oaths and vows. I mean, especially in Christian lands. It is commanded of God in his law that men, as a main part of holy worship, now he's talking about nationally, should swear by his name. I mean, this is foreign to today's mindset. This is foreign. Why? Because we have bought the line that it's sacred secular. The sacred, the secular is rank secularism, and the sacred is, well, it's just spiritual. But we need to know how these two are to be truly 
understood and how they relate to one another. There is a sacred, there certainly is a secular, but they're not in opposition to one another in God's world. There is a harmony that can exist between the two and should exist between the two, but both have to perform their roles and parts. But if we are just heavenly minded, if we're just waiting to get to heaven, we don't want to bog ourselves down with any of these civil responsibilities and duties. Well, then we will have what we have today. That's the cause of it. It's part of it. And he goes on, he talks about the end of, uh, of strife and whatnot. He says, he pronounces it further to be the right of the right and natural means in human controversies for the ending of all strife and that God for this very reason has condescended to use the form of an oath in confirming his own covenant. And he talks about James in the epistle, how we should use our mouths Remember that the, the words we say are to be considered, you know, in some sense, sacred in the sense that we ought to be careful how we use our mouths and the things we say, not to be rash, not to be hasty. And I know I, I just, these are things that are, we need to be reminded of. I mean, because what is one of the debates around the First Amendment? You know, one of the debates that makes me grieve over the First Amendment or the idea of the First Amendment, which I'm for freedom of speech for sure, but pornography is not freedom of speech. Okay? Vulgarity is not freedom of speech. You know, when you talk about the, what's taking place in art, I don't want to go into any explicit details, but some of it is absolutely despicable and gross, but it's called freedom of speech. I think things like that need to be addressed, okay? Because remember, what do we want to do with our society? We want to lift it up and make it noble and good, and it's hard to do. Vulgarity tears a society down. Pornography tears a society down. That's just part of it. I mean, there, it, there, there are obviously tentacles that flow out from that, but this is part of this idea of there being a sacred secular, how they work together and how what we, what we think, what we say, what we do and all these things. I mean, when you, when you have a, a consent, and look, this is the conservative movement I'm talking about here. You're going to find most conservatives say, oh yeah, well, I mean, look, I don't like pornography, but it's their right. Well, we're talking about the public good. I don't know if you know this. You probably don't. But the United States government actually did. I mean, some of you are familiar with the Kinsey Report, that, that piece of trash that was passed off as the psychology of sexuality. Well, the federal government had done a report, a study on human sexuality, but particularly sexual pervertedness, perversion. In the report stated that sexual perversion absolutely undermines, erodes, and corrupts and destroys any nation it seeps into. That was, the, that was the finding. 
That was the government's finding in the report, doing all of the sociological studies, doing all the studies of morality, all of the ethics, everything, considering all what they are, they said it absolutely destroys the nation. And that report was never published, but it exists. You can still find a copy of it. But this is, again, a misunderstanding. I mean, we, we've made everything vulgar. Everything's vulgar. It's not even, we're not even close to having something sacred. I'm going to end with this last paragraph. It's powerful. It's to the point. And then I'm going to open up for some questions. I think we can have a, a little bit of time for questions because I think it's needed for us to talk through some things. But he says this. It's a very short section in the book. And I'm only hitting the highlights. He says, where the view which condemns all oaths as unchristian is the badge of a small sect only. Now, you know, there are sects that don't believe Christians. We all should ever vow anything. I think Jehovah Witnesses are part of that. I, think, I don't know about the Mormons, but anyway, and then there are some Christians. He says, they're a small sect only. It may be almost harmless because they're so few. He says, an affirmation by those among them who fear God will be a virtual oath. And the difference be chiefly in name. But in the principle, once spread widely, its evil results will soon appear. That is, even among them, the act of not taking oaths that are necessary will have a detriment effect upon them. Let me stop there and say this. You know, this morning, you were oath-taking in worship. You know you were doing that. That's what the Lord's Day does. When you come into the presence of God, what are you doing? You're making promises to God. And you are receiving his blessing. And you are even affirming that if you were to walk away from him and not keep your confession, uh, your profession of faith, that you are worthy of judgment. You are oath-taking and that was one of the, the ideas that made the Lord's day so sacred because of the activity that God had designed for the day. It's unique. It's special. We don't do it all the time, but we do it in worship. When we come and take the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? Are we not making promises? We are. We're making promises to walk and abide in Christ according to his spirit and power and favor and all the things that he provides for us. So keep that in mind as you prepare your questions. He says, every Christian indeed ought to speak the truth all the time. And remember always his future account of the words of his lips. But there are few who attain constantly to this high standard. Truthfulness, where it exists, needs sometimes to be quickened and sustained by an express appeal to the presence of the searcher of all hearts. That's an oath. Where this fence of justice is broken down, judicial evidence will sink to the level of daily conversation. And this, too, by the same downward course, 
will likely be de- will likely to depart conversation or likely to depart more and more from the law of strict veracity till the words of the prophet are fulfilled and the truth perishes from the lips of men this has been so long standing we don't even know what truth is anymore that's why we that's why we can't deal with objective truth we, we it's like a foreign person to us If you're struggling, brothers and sisters, you see if it includes you and you're struggling with sin. When you're struggling with sin and you're coming to the Lord's Supper, what are you saying, Lord? I promise, help me. I'm going to walk in your ways, Lord. Come and bless me. I'm going to, I'm going to put this off. Now, brothers and sisters, if we're going to see our nation get right, we've got to get right. Words matter. They have meaning. For sure. They have to mean something in our families. They have to mean something in our church. They have to mean something in our society. We have to strive to be promise keepers. And we should not back down and be afraid of taking an oath. Lord, I make a covenant with my eyes not to dwell on that which is unholy. You know who did that? Job did. Job did that. To aid himself in the walking in the integrity of his heart. Who has confidence in our justice system? I don't. You might get it. I don't know. You might not. I am absolutely afraid of standing in a courtroom situation being judged by my peers who do not hold to these things. If I was going to have some confidence when I stood in that place, I would want my peers to hold to the same sacred ideas that I hold to. And if I'm not convinced of a crime, I would stand not convinced instead of going with the flow or voting because they're not the right color or voting because they're not the right religion or voting against him or declaring against him because they're not of the right political family, which is going on and it's winked at and it's even expected. Those men, there's been men and women standing trial. We're never, ever going to get a fair trial, particularly the January 6th people. And there have been dozens of others. Dozens of others. Not just them, but they are the most glaring embarrassment. And you talk about a calling down of judgment. Literally hundreds of, of people's lives have been ruined in the name of political justice. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, God will not sit idly by and allow that to happen without severe consequences to those people that have put their hand on Holy Scripture 
and took an oath to uphold justice. God is the same. Listen, this is the same God that flooded the earth. This is the same God that brought the plagues to Egypt. This is the same God that brought fire and brimstone out of the heavens on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the same. I saw an Old Testament preacher. Okay. Well, it's the same God that struck Ananias and Sapphira down in the for lying. It's the same God that struck down the Roman emperor who took glory to his own name in the book of Acts. Same God. It's the same God that rides upon the white horse that John saw that has a sword flowing from his mouth and blood on his robe and a name upon his thigh that says King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The same God. And I don't mean to be morbid and I certainly don't mean to be um, to, to test your faith, so to speak, and to challenge you. But brothers and sisters, God, God is no respecter of persons. His name is supreme. And when we take his name in our mouths and we don't mean it, mm, that's not good. It's not good for the person. It's not good for a family. It's not good for a nation. 